0: My name is Luke Bretherton, and this is the Listen, Organise, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organizing in democratic politics. In this second series, I'm exploring key figures and texts that have shaped organizing over the years. This episode in particular discusses the work of Ella Baker and the different traditions and influence that shaped her organizing practice and her understanding of democracy. Now, Baker didn't write much, and what she did write is is not widely available. Instead, her approach is taught through accounts of it by historians of the civil rights movement and her biographers. So it's her life and practice that I'm focusing on here in this two-part episode. That said, in the second part of this episode, I discuss briefly Charles Payne's book, I've Got the Light of Freedom, which is about the history of the Mississippi freedom struggle focusing in particular on the chapter entitled Slow and Respectful Work. Payne's book and this chapter is often used to introduce what organising is as an approach to democratic politics. In part one of this episode, I discuss Ella Baker, her vision of democracy, and her legacy with my colleague at Duke, Wesley Hogan. Wesley is research professor at the Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke. She has researched and written extensively on the civil rights movement, particularly the work of the Student on Violent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which Baker helped organise and within which Baker was a key figure. And in her most recent work, Wesley examines contemporary movements influenced by Baker, such as the Movement for Black Lives and the International Indigenous Youth Council, which is involved in the struggle to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline and protect sovereign control of Indigenous lands. Thank you for coming on to the Listen Organise Act uh, podcast. Really great to have you uh, here.
1: Luke, this is so exciting. I'm so grateful for the podcast. Good to be here.
0: So for those listening who aren't that familiar with Ella Baker, can you just give a very kind of brief summary of like who was she and why is she significant for thinking about democracy and organising in general?
1: Ella Baker is simply a giant of the 20th century. She was a champion of human and civil rights. She showed people a way to live as an organizer when that wasn't a very legible role. And to do so in an ethical way, to build power through the leadership of people at the base. And so I think a couple of ways she is utterly unique among other small-D democratic heroes of the 20th century is that she really focuses on what she calls spade work, Mm-hmm. the slow patient work to help people develop their capacities at the grassroots. She thinks strategically, both short-term and long-term. She's always pushing people, pushing people towards purposeful action. And finally, she thinks about education. So not ever education just for itself, not to be credentialed, but education so that people had more information to self govern.
0: Right. Well that that's a brilliant summary. I think we'll we'll come we'll pick up on a lot of those themes as we go through. But just I mean I'm kind of interested, like how how did you get interested in her? I mean I know you've got a, you've written on civil rights movement you've written on lots of areas but I I'm kind of interested in how you came across her and how what what kind of drew you to her as a figure.
1: Yeah. So I grew up as a mutt. I was kind of half working class Irish. Right. South Philly and half to the manor born wasp Chestnut Hill, which is kind of a snooty right. suburb. And I didn't ever let and literally my parents when when they got married in nineteen sixty eight had to promise both the local priest and the Episcopal minister that they would take any kids they had to both the Mass and the
2: right.
1: high Anglican. And so <laughs> I really didn't like from a very early age the way the Wasp half spoke about the Irish half. So right. There was kind of a sympathy that bordered on almost pity or condescension. And, you know, when I joined like Amnesty International in middle school and high school, there was that same kind of like setting ourselves apart from the people dealing most directly with the issue. And they weren't really in the struggle. They were helpers. And so I was really drawn to Ella Baker because when I was interviewing SNCC people in the 90s, they talked about repeatedly that she said that the key was that the struggle must be engaged by the struggler. Right. And she makes this real in a way that she didn't just say it, but she yeah. acted it out every day, you know, day in, day out and showed people in SNCC how to do that kind of organizing. And it's a really a 180 from the way many nonprofits and charities mm-hmm. and even some of us in academia, some social some, workers.
0: many, <laughs> many, most.
1: <laughs> have set ourselves up in relationship to those people who are experiencing someone's structural foot on their neck. So. I was just really excited. I mean, you know, Stoughton and Alice Lind called this accompaniment. Paulo Freire, Miles Horton, Septima Clark all took the same approach of making sure people at the base were Mm self-determining. And IAF has historically, not often, um, um, sometimes stepped outside of this. But most of the time, IAF invests in working with people at the base in this way. You know, those closest to and most impacted by the issue or problem must lead the solution or the process to build the solution. Mm -hmm. So she modeled that, and she showed hierarchical organizations like the NAACP and uh, Southern, C- Southern Christian Leadership Conference how they might do it, right. and she definitely taught it to SNCC. Right,
2: right. So she right,
1: just right. really excited me because when I was, you know, like in the 1980s and 90s, there was nobody in my field of vision hmm. who was modeling that.
0: Right, right. So can you, I mean, just going back, starting in a sense of with her early life, because she, she talks Look uh, the the kind of influence of her grandparents um, uh, experiences really growing up in the Baptist Church and the role of the women 's organization in the Baptist Church. Can you just say a little bit about the early influences on her um, and yeah. then particularly her, the, 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 you know her grandparents who had been slaves and then their their role her father was a minister, and then what it meant for her to grow up in the Baptist Church? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So she was born in Littleton, North Carolina and and grew up some there and some in, Eden, in um, Norfolk, Virginia. So she said she came out of a family that was concerned about people and quote, I had developed a certain curiosity about that, which I did not know. I would go to any meeting anywhere if I could learn something.
2: Wow. <laughs> so
1: I think those things were kind of a very much of a part of her early growing up. Her favorite relative was possibly her grandfather Mm -hmm. who had been enslaved and who had bought by 1888 uh, former parcels of the plantation where he had been enslaved. And he and his wife um, had enough room there that they gave plots to family members. And she used to ride around with her grandfather on his horse and buggy. And she loved talking to people. He was more laid back. She would kind of engage and he was what she called really, really proud to be Black. Almost conceited, she would say again and <laughs> again. And and same with his wife. So his wife um, had been enslaved in the house of this plantation. And the white um, plantation mistress had tried to encourage uh, Ella Baker's grandmother to marry a light-skinned man who had the same complexion as she did. And she said, no, I'm going to marry the man I want to marry. And that was Ella Baker's grandfather. And so both grandparents had this very strong regal presence and uh, a huge pride in blackness that Baker adapted as her own. So I think that's an important influence. Um, So when she goes to Norfolk uh, as a six-year-old and she's living there and a little white boy calls her the N-word she immediately reacts without even thinking and punches him right in the face. And, you know, she has a hilarious story that she tells about this as an organizer. So by 1974, she says, um, you know, I had to learn when I punched this boy in the face that hitting with my fist, only one individual was not enough. (laughs) But um, it takes organization. It takes dedication. And so she uses that as a a jumping off point to talk about why we can't just march, right? We Um, have to have a series of organizing principles and ideas and structures underneath of us so that it's not just one day and that and things will get better. Wow. So I think she takes that fighting spirit from her grandmother and grandfather. Um, her, she loved talking to anybody. She was a hugely curious child and her, both of her grandparents and her parents encouraged that. So she was um, an early and, and precocious learner. She went to boarding school at Shaw before she went to college there. She she found a lot of joy in in learning about things she didn't know about, right? And she was valedictorian, you know, but at right. Shaw by nineteen twenty seven. So she she had a really good base for moving into what she would later do.
0: Right, right. and can you say a little bit, just a little bit there about then the the Baptist Church and and that. Kind of background and formation.
1: So her grandfather not only buys this part of the former plantation near the Roanoke River in Warren County, North Carolina, but he divides it into plots and builds a church. And so that Baptist church is where he preaches for you know the entirety of her young life. And 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 a major message that he carries through is people over property, and an ethos of care in the community itself for one another and a collective gathering of resources for education and for um, spiritual nurture. So the church is an essential part of her early life. And it's where she sees um, people that she loves paying a lot of attention to relationship and the value of those relationships over anything else.
0: When she leaves uh, shore again, here here in North Carolina, she goes, she ends up in New York, particularly, it's a very particular bit of New York. She's in Harlem. Kind of at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, this kind of remarkable artistic intellectual moment. Um, and so, can you just say a little bit about that? What impact that had on her? And, and, and particularly, she kind of engages with quite radical political thought and Marxist thought, and, and the kind of confluence of really black nationalism and Marxist thought going on in Harlem at that at that time. Can you just speak a little bit about how that shaped her and some of the influences there?
1: Yeah. So she arrives in um, the summer of 1927 and she pretty much immediately falls into a community of uh, dynamic young women who Polly Murray, who's a good friend of hers later, describes as black feminist foremothers. They didn't call themselves feminists, but Murray claims them as such. And initially she's really stifled. I mean, she's hanging out at the YMCA, the Harlem branch of the YMCA, which later becomes the Schomburg. And then also a little bit further down the street, the Harlem Branch Library, where she starts pretty quickly a Negro history club. But she's stymied. Um, She's looking for a job. She's the valedictorian. She kind of expects to find herself in a white collar job. And she found that she can't even get a job, which she says licking the back of envelopes. So she's sort of traipsing around Manhattan looking for work. And she ends up finding a job actually at the NYU um, dining hall. And so she works there um, that kind of what Moya Bailey in 2014 called misogynoir employment structure, right? Where black women, even highly educated ones are sort of locked out. So she's working as a waitress and she likes it because she's a lot of downtime. (laughs)
2: She's
1: walking around Washington Square Park and she meets this young Russian man. And so she strikes up conversation and he's of course, organizing a Marxist organization. He tries to recruit her. And so she grows fascinated by this sort of downtown and uptown Marxist scenes. Um, and the, and not just Marxist, socialist, pacifist, right. Mm -hmm. All this kind of flourishing of ideology. And she reads everything. She starts reading Marx. She engages in these fierce debates, um, uh, with colleagues, both downtown and uptown about Marxism. And, um, that's where the Harlem branch library comes in. She's offering, um, you know, young people who are about 10 years younger than her, a chance to also debate these ideas. Mm. And then she goes uh, for a semester in 1931 to something called Brookwood Labor College in Katona, New York. And this was started a decade earlier by a group of socialists and pacifists to sort of offer union organizers and other progressives, a curriculum that was socially adept. Um, And, um, so her biographer, Barbara Ransby, makes this great point about the Brookwood Labor College that sort of gives her this um, idea of what transformative education could look like in non-traditional environments. So she she takes a lot of the theoretical paradigms, the pedagogies, the philosophies that are at Brookwood and kind of spent the rest of her adult life mastering ways to pass that knowledge on to others to see right. education as empowerment. Um, but to circle back a little bit to your question of sort of how she's looking at class and these questions around Marx, she's very suspicious of any dogmatism. And so she loves the engagement. She's a beautiful Mm. debater. She's an extremely accomplished rhetorician. Um, but she's very skeptical of any totalizing system. Mm. And so she kind of picks the pieces that are intriguing to her and digs in. She's very close to um, a woman who who clandestinely joins the Communist Party. Uh, And she'll write an article with her about uh, Black women's structural displacement in the economic uh, labor market in New York. But she herself never feels compelled to join because, again, the the intellectual flexibility and curiosity are absolute ha- hallmarks she's yeah. always looking for what is practical what can i do with this information how can i move the needle more towards a just world hmm. so she she doesn't herself join the communist party
0: she i mean that, i think that anti-dogmatism is something that characterizes her approach really all the way through and it i i my sense i don't know if it's what you think about this my sense is that there's for her because of this fierce commitment to democracy understood as people should have their have the agency to determine their living and working conditions anything whether it's the messianic black preacher or a, a kind of totalizing ideology or a kind of complete complete kind of overarching state system which diminishes or undermines or in some way takes away from ordinary people getting together to determine their living and working conditions. I just think she has this deep kind of suspicion of, suspicion of it. I mean, I definitely think that's a fair reading.
1: Oh, no, that's that's right on. I mean, I, w- I will add that one thing that gets her very excited in this period, that she's she starts working for uh, a New Deal organization called the WPA. And right. she's basically teaching in settlement houses, union halls, churches, workplaces, the, and as con, consumer education. And mm-hmm. so there's no curriculum, she has to design it. And so <laughs> she and her friend, Conrad Lynn kind of getting a bit of a tiff with their boss about, they're supposed to be neutral, right? They're government workers. So um, the struggle between capital and labor, they're supposed to provide sort of a both sides right. education. <laughs> and Conrad Lynn says, well, we won the right to study the history of the labor movement. And so, that was a victory. And Baker's syllabi, and again, this is from Ransby's wonderful biography, includes questions like, why so much poverty in so rich a country as America?
2: Right. right.
1: And what role can organized and dynamic consumer action play in issuing a new social order? <laughs> right. Right. So these are not you know neutral yeah. syllabi questions. And yeah. she gets really excited by exploring what The people who she's, you know, the people she's working with are, are clothing workers, domestic workers, transport workers, unemployed, Hmm. Pullman uh, car porters. So she had to really respond to the questions they were bringing at the height of the depression to the classroom. And so she was, she had to take in all of those, uh, the feedback that they were sharing with her.
0: Mm. I mean, that, so just picking up on that, the WPA, I mean, is set up as part of the New New Deal. I mean, she's doing and developed during this time, um, forms of popular, I would call popular education. And, and then that connects later on in her life with the Highlander Folk Center. And she connects up with people like Sefton McClark and Dorothy Cotton and, and Miles Horton. Can you just say a little about how she understood popular education and what, how she would have understood that? Cause that does seem to be, really central to her vision of organizing.
1: Yes. So she's really excited by Brookwood, as I mentioned, but then she also joins the Harlem Branch Library's Adult Education Committee in about the same time. So, um, and this includes not just books, but plays and graphic and performing arts and lectures and book discussions. And so people are not just... Sort of using this knowledge for personal empowerment, but really as tools in the struggle against oppression. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, the person who runs the the Harlem branch sees this and hires her (laughs) in January of 1934 to coordinate kind of an educational and really what feminists would later call consciousness raising program at the library for youth. So it's like 16 to 24 year olds. And she calls it the Young People's Forum. Which is beautiful because today there's an organization calling the Young People's Project, which does a really similar thing um, nationwide, uh, formed by the daughter and son of Bob Moses, who was a, oh, wow. a, a wow. student uh, or a mm. mentee of, of Ella Baker's. But so in the 1930s, she's seen herself as a catalyst to sort of linking together these different segments of the black community. She always says, I'd, I'd never want to work with just the lady in the furs or just the domestic. I want to bring everybody to the table. So she's breaking down generational barriers through, through this educational programming. She's facilitating exchange of skills and resources. She's introducing these Harlem teenagers to these very prominent Harlem-based speakers. And so all of that is in service to getting people activated. So it's not just come hear this speech. It's come here this speech. And then, what are you going to do with it? So, she's really excited by the possibility of what people will later, you know, come to to call popular education. Uh, She connects with Septima Clark and the citizenship schools when she moves back to the South uh, in the 1950s. And Clark is, of course, innovating in very exciting ways with Esau Jenkins and others in South Carolina around the citizenship schools. And then Miles Horton at Highlander, uh, who's providing popular education resources for both the union and civil rights movement across the South, is so excited to to welcome her and they develop a a long term friendship. So I think those kinds of parallel things that we see happening throughout the region of the South She's really excited to bring what she's learned in New York back home.
0: Right, right, right. I think in a previous episode discussing Alinsky, and he again have became very close friends of Miles Horton, I think it's often misunderstood about Alinsky. He, he himself saw himself in that kind of popular education mode. And but it's all mm-hmm. this it's always this, and I think it's central to Baker and Clark and Horton, um, and then Dorothy Cotton, the this move to action. It's not just education for education's sake you're you're trying to analyze the world not for you're you're somehow enlightened at the end of it but how can you then use that knowledge and your deeper understanding to come together with others to act to change the world and that really is the kind of anim, animating spirit of the whole thing and the, the, this and you you have very eclectic kind of sources of knowledge. You'll do agricultural systems one day and kind of Marxist analysis another day and cooperative movements, you know, but it's all, how do you bring it together and arts and plays and can be very eclectic, but it's in the service of shared action and and generating the shared world of meaning and action then together um but just going i want to go back to the little bit of because I, I think again it feeds into the popular education work but her just her time working for the young negro Cooperative League from from 1931 onwards yeah. again i think that's it's often that's often not when people think about Lola Baker, they don't they necessarily think about the cooperative movement. And it's one of the things that's coming, cooperative movement is very big in, in the European context. And it was interesting moving when I moved here about 10 years ago, really learning that there is a huge cooperative movement in the US and a very rich history of that, but it's not one that people are very knowledgeable about. Can you just say a little bit about kind of what the cooperative movement at this time was? Doing and particularly then kind of black cooperatives, black-led cooperatives that she um, that she was part of and, and what was something of the kind of guiding philosophy of them?
2: Well,
1: just to build back even to your idea of idea moving to action through education, I think how to move idea to action is always an experiment mm. today as much as then. And so one of the pieces that was true for her in the 1930s when she is in Harlem seeing this enormous catastrophe play out in everyday people's lives and her neighbor's lives. And she's watching children digging through trash. She's extremely adamant that anything that people can do, they must do. So, you know, she's only 27. So she's, she's still trying to find out what she thinks could work. And she becomes very good friends with a fascinating um, Pittsburgh Courier columnist named George Schuyler. And he's, he's written a, in 1930 a piece in the Pittsburgh Courier, an, a black newspaper at the time that was wed, read nationally, that economic cooperatives could be the, a strategy, that they could really combat the economic devastation being wreaked by the depression to educate black people about socialism in general and could provide a practical way for people to come together and do something in these local communities. And so then they would try to network them nationally. Mm -hmm. So he proposes this idea. And in the spring of 1930, sort of makes this call nationwide for cooperative economics um, in black communities. And that the, the purpose of this young Negro Cooperative League would be to study the idea and how it could be implemented and then to implement it. Right. So he's the president and Baker is the first national director. So for about 18 months, they spend uh, so much time and energy organizing. Skylar's 35, Baker's 27. They say nobody under 35, over 35 <laughs> can join because yeah. I love this. They say that all the old people, um, quote, the measure is sure to keep the control of the organization in the hands of young people. We consider most of the oldsters hopelessly bourgeois and intent on emulating Rockefeller and Ford on a shoestring budget. And so they <laughs> meant it, right? It was just young yeah. people. And so they had two dozen affiliates national nationwide and each was supposed to support the national o- office with like a portion of mm-hmm. their earnings. And of course this doesn't have enough time to sort of bubble up and support, mm-hmm. you know, cooperatives as you know, take so so long. Yeah. And in the course of the de- desperation of the time, people didn't have enough money to support the national office. So it they had a five-year plan. They wanted to train 5,000 co-op leaders by 32 and establish a wholesale outlet, an independent college. And mm. though most of those goals were never realized, the membership of this um, YNCL League really helped Baker think about the power of networks. Right. And it, of Absolutely. course, built on this experience she'd had as a young child, these visions of mutual obligation and shared resources and taking care of one another. So it, it sort of brought forward the best that she remembered from her childhood. And then the pro- any profits were supposed to go towards the common good. So mm-hmm. new clinics, libraries, cooperative housing, those kinds of things. So by 1935, this has collapsed but right. it has really solidified in her a worldview that a redistribution of wealth has to be a part of the long-term solution. And so she says that again in 1974, you know, if we are going to make this world just, we have to get rid of capitalism and imperialism flat,
0: mm. you know, yeah. full stop. Yeah. I, I would say that's been a, ve- that was a very consistent, that, that commitment to economic democracy, not just you know, she's known most widely for her work in civil rights, but, but underlying it. And similarly, I'm, I'm going to be um, talking about Bayard Rustin uh, in the next episode. And and similarly, he, that deep commitment to economic democracy, and fame and kind of, I would almost put it in terms of kind of democratic socialist vision, but there, that sense of, again, it, it embodied in something like a cooperative is this notion of shared agency and kind of reciprocity uh, as, uh, as a kind of guiding vision of the quality and character, really, that should undergird both economic and political relationships. It's a, I think it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a key... I mean, it, it doesn't come through necessarily in the later work, but it obviously does come through as the civil rights movement emerges. And we have obviously with King, with the Poor People's Campaign later, and, and that element of the importance of economic democracy um, his final speech to sanitation workers is precisely part of this fight. Um, but, but turning now to her involvement, she eventually works for the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. Can you say a little bit about, she? it, it feels like it's quite a conflictual time for her. Um, she has a particular vision drawing on this experience working in popular education, in economic democracy, her own kind of background she she has a sense of what this organization can be and very much serving the needs of its members very much orientated in in a more kind of grassroots vision can you say how her approach contrasts with that of her boss walter white his vision of what the organization should be and and in some ways the 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 kind of founding vision that W. Dubois had for the organization. See, I think he he seems to have had rather a different vision to both Ella Baker and Walter White. So you could you just speak? Because I think it's quite interesting to see how NAACP has these very different kinds of ideas yeah. at work within it.
1: So I will say a couple of things. Like One, the NAACP contains multitudes. From its beginning oh. to now, it is a, a really dynamic and extremely important organizing institution in some of the same ways that IF has organized through churches and religious organizations. So it's really important. And I think before I talk about her differences with Walter White and Du Bois, I want to just mention what she does because some people have called her like the underground. I I remember so vividly in 2010 here in, in Raleigh, there was a 50th anniversary of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and a senior at North Carolina Central stood up and said, I'm so tired of seeing Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer referred to as the underground of the civil rights movement. They're the architects, they're the drawers up of the blueprint. (laughs) And I think that is largely right. So in many seminars and books on the civil rights movement, you'll see that she's missing or she's kind of a quote, behind-the-scenes organizer. Mm. And this is not what she is. She's not the underground. She was one of the major architects. And part of where that starts is in, uh, you know, she's she's working in New York for the NAACP, and half of the year, so six months of a year, she travels 40,000 miles Amazing. throughout the South. And she's setting up one-on-ones. She mm. does relationship building. Um, she does small house meetings. And she, she has deep and personal and political relationships with local black activists throughout all parts of the South that she develops through the NAACP in the 1940s and fifties. And so she is sort of single-handedly generating these branches throughout the, the region most impacted by Jim Crow.
2: Right.
1: And um, she's doing it, you know, half the time in New York, half the time in the South. And so what is going to happen with the reason why she's an architect, not an underground is that, She sets these networks up in the forties and fifties and people trust her. So when SNCC starts sitting in, in 1960, they don't know what to do after marching the sit-ins, right? They don't know what to do next. They don't know anything about organizing. And they, she comes right in there and she connects these young people to this massive network of people who deeply trust her in this incredibly dangerous region. And she sends the young people Two elders like Amzie Moore, right. like Edie Nixon and Montgomery, um, you know, and she says to them, to the SNCC people, "Put yourself up under these people and learn, listen, right." right? right. So she doesn't say go there and sit in. Hmm. She says you need to go there and listen and learn and move with them. And right. so by connecting those young activists of SNCC to these older local leaders. She sets the groundwork for the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act in a way that I haven't seen fully fleshed out yet in any wow. kind of um, literal way and certainly in popular culture. And it's kind of it's a little bit submerged in the scholarship. Hmm. Hmm. So she was radical in that sense in the NAACP that it wasn't radical what she wanted. The NAACP wanted people to vote, right. they wanted people registered, they wanted people engaged but it was who she wanted to work with, which was all right. the people in what Bob Moses later calls the the bottom quartile, right? The, the socioeconomic status people who are at the bottom 25% of wage earners. And so that was what was radical and drove some of the people in the NAACP nuts was that she kept focusing on the people who were in that bottom quartile right. and said, they deserve everything that we deserve and I'm going to work with them and I'm going to I'm gonna to get to know them as people. I'm gonna care about them. They're gonna open NAA chapters. And so, so that's how she's operating in the NAACP. So she creates this incredible network. It it sustains the NAACP at a time where it's not sure what it should be doing. Remember that it's, you know, Charles Hamilton Houston in as Dean of the Howard Law School is creating an incredible legal arm. Right. of the NAACP with people who Constance Baker Motley and uh, Thurgood Marshall and Oliver Hill, who are going to revolutionize civil rights law. But right. that's so slow. <laughs> it's right. so slow, right? And, it, and it's kind of at the mercy of outside forces. And so she really wants to, nah, let's move. Let's, let's, we don't right. want to get stuck. So you know, she is never going to say that. So when she resigns quietly in 46, she has a big platform in Cincinnati at the national conference, and she says nothing nice there's nothing and I want to respect that you know she never publicly explains why she quits but I will add that um by 1970s she says something like the NAACP was tied up in legalism and if people aren't willing to take whatever step is necessary this is a quote and if people aren't willing to take whatever step is necessary to move beyond a given spot you're stuck right and they're Were these youngsters who were not only willing to take the kinds of stands that I might have suggested, but they had gone even beyond that. So, youngsters at that point, she's talking about the Dr. King and the Mm -hmm. SELC. So she's really, um, you know, thinking about what might come forward, as well as the young people in the in the very small youth chapters of these local NAACP's. Um, And I think a final thing to say between. Uh, both Du Bois and White, they were different men, but they both had a very strong top-down philosophy of organizational culture. And that tight control at the top had no feedback loop, giving them information from the base, the grassroots folks. And that just, right, that just really at her. And, And so she says at one point, you know, look, I was working with them and my ego wasn't at stake at any point. I simply found a greater sense of importance by being a part of those who were growing.
0: Right. right. So
1: you can interpret that like yeah. how you yeah. Well, yeah.
0: But she was uh, pretty St. Paul would say, let the reader understand. <laughs>
1: yeah. She felt like the movement outside of those legal processes could benefit from her enormous skill set. And so she, you know, withdrew. Um, you know, in answer to this, too. Luke, I have to say that I went back and looked at both for SELC and NAA, what she said to some of these SNCC people uh-huh. later on, these young people about these organizations. And, and they've got some interesting responses. So they worked with her for years. And in an era before there was an articulation of the women's movement, you know what Dorothy Cotton said was, Whether you're talking about the SCLC or the NAA, when this group of people got put together and were almost all male, and she saw herself not being respected for the executive role she could play, the programmatic role she could play, there was just a constant friction. Mm. And she was too interested in action to get hung up and play those bureaucratic games.
0: Right. Right. So
1: she just really wanted to move. And so she yeah. went to the places and organizations where she thought she could support movement.
0: Right, right. So she's she's got this extraordinary network now. It's it's the late forties. We're just we're just at the cusp really of what we'd recognize as the kind of civil rights movement in in a sense of the popular imagination. Obviously, lots of histories show it's got much, much longer and deeper roots going back kind of twenties, even before that. Montgomery bus boycott happens. There's this formation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with King and the other preachers, Abernathy and others. She's involved. Can you just what's her role in the SCLC um, and the and the and the bus boycott as well?
1: Yeah. So she, of course, knew the grassroots leaders in Montgomery. So she had been longtime friends with Rosa Parks and. Edie Nixon and Joanne Robinson from years and years of travel to Montgomery and and its um, surrounds. And she is someone who knew grassroots leaders in every town and city across the South because of the NAACP work. So when she saw Dr. King, this young 26-year-old minister and the SCLC moving in Montgomery, she thought she could put her skills to work on behalf of helping them set up a region wide organization so the big question of every movement is always okay what what next right or lenin what is to be done and so this was the this was the big question for Montgomery was all right you know we did this in a little bit more than a year we got the buses integrated and now what Mine. and so the the ministers were not at all in agreement in the sclc about what could come next and so she She her role as executive director was to bring some some resourced knowledge to how to not only set up the organization, but how to share knowledge, what worked in one place, what what might work in another, what won't work, you know, to help them facilitate the sharing of information, which is so critical to any new network and to have some regular forms of channels of communication, as well as to hopefully connect the SELC to these regional and local NAA chapters, which you know like all organizations are kind of protective of their fundraising, protective mm-hmm. of their culture, and so it wasn't from the beginning it wasn't necessarily clear what the relationship would be like between the NAACP and the SCLC
0: yeah
1: so it was hope you know she she could bring all of that knowledge to bear
0: I mean I think that's a, it's an interesting challenge in organizing and it's a big debate at the moment between the kind of organizing and movement building work and can you integrate them and can these kind of fit together and there's tended to be either you do very local forms of organizing and then there's there's a kind of bit of turf like which you protect against other or can you actually build coalitions of different kinds of organizations to have a either a more regional or national movement and that that's exemplified both in this moment then in the civil rights movement more more broadly and she's in a sense, she's doing. She, in, in my view, she's one of the few people who has that sense of how you do both deeply local, deeply relational, uh, grassroots organizing work, and how that can connect up to broader, both organizations and a broader vision of strategy. I think people often see someone like Bayard Rustin as having this kind of very key strategic role, but I in terms of actually how you do organising at both a local, regional and national sense, she's, she because of her experience in different kinds of institutional setups and, and organisational setups, she seems to have a sense of that. Is that do you think that's a fair account of, of her sense of what she... Now, I, I don't think anyone could quite recognise that at the time. I think she's way ahead of the game on this. But, but yeah, do you think that's what, part of what she's trying to bring to birth there?
1: I think that's a really insightful point. And she and Byard Rustin were of course dear friends. Yeah. So they it would be so wonderful. You know, people are always saying today of movement people, like we're gonna lose all this stuff because it's all digitized. Well, there's a lot I wish I could know about what the relationship was like right. between her and Biard Rustin. Yeah. Because they knew so much and they passed it on through relationship mostly. I mean, Bayard Rustin wrote some and she wrote some, but most of what they passed on was through their relationships with people which as you and I know, like is a very effective way. And yet it also, yeah, I would love, I would have loved it if more of their relationship would, could be seen in letters or a conversation on the radio or something like that. But to your point, I think, yes, she, she was largely illegible to many of the people that she worked with at the SCLC as well. And in part, you know, I think part of my bias For small D democracy puts me in opposition to people like Wyatt T. Walker, who was the executive director of SCLC right after Baker. But when I was doing some background for this podcast, I was watching a beautiful movie made in 1983 called Fundy, which is about wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a great. I did that. I watched it as well. It's terrific. Right,
1: and in that I had forgotten that there's this beautiful footage of Wyatt T. Who is very hierarchical and a very like ministers minister. And he makes this profound comment where he says, this was the day before women's liberation. And here was Ella, a veteran civil rights activist, a female with the task of coordinating the activities of a group made up of predominantly preachers. (laughs) He says, when I came some years later to be the executive, I had the same difficulties. (laughs) The only edge I had was that I was one of them. (laughs) And I knew how to circumvent some of the things or how to smooth things the right way. Whereas a lay person would not. Have accessible to them. Yeah. And then she says, he says, you know, these little nuances of how to handle the so-called preacher ego. Hmm. And I don't think we can downplay that, that she was, these are men who, you know, were kind of really, imp, they, they were fundamental, important people in their communities, as well as regionally and nationwide. And she respected that, but also knew the limits of that. Hmm. and oftentimes thought you have your place, but there are people like me who can do work too
2: yeah.
1: and you're not respecting or seeing me. Hmm. And I think that was, a, a an insight that Wyatt Walker, Reverend Walker brought. Although I'm, I'm not sure he shared it with her at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: And it was a really big challenge for her to do This organizing behind the scenes work, which she didn't mind being behind the scenes at all. She didn't want to be out front. But to not be respected and treated with full dignity, I think, was grading in a way that was difficult. And simply put, she couldn't get the work done in that environment that she needed to do. She didn't have their support to go ahead and do the work.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's another dimension. There's, there's a straightforward sexism she experienced both at the NAACP and, and at the SCLC. There's also, I think, that added dimension because of her commitments to people discovering their own agency and this, the struggler being involved in their own struggle, as you said before. She is, I mean, I think she has a certain kind of um, anti clericalism at work in there as well, because she's just seen too much of. Certain kind of preachily uh, kind of overreach, but but there's but that sense of of which the the figure, and I think this comes through in a relationship with King, that the the, the charismatic or, or messianic preacher figure will come and save us, and actually that undermines that's anti-democratic. We're all the time looking uh, for the messianic figure. We saw a bit with Obama and others like. This looking for the messianic figure who will make the world come out all right, um, rather than coming together to remake the world ourselves, and and I, that that seems to me also what she's very. I mean, there's as I said, there's, there's a straightforward sexism, but she's frustrated by the ways in which the SCLC is constantly playing to it's almost seducing people with this kind of savior figure complex that, that we can just give it over to these group of men to, and they'll, they'll kind of, they become the focus of everything rather than how do you distribute leadership, distribute agency, enable people. Cause other, and, and I think part of, again, what she sees in, in terms of the problems, the kind of structural problems with the SALC approach is that it's very brittle. You know, when if you lose the leader, or the leader shown to have clay feet, as is often the case, or um, there's a f- factionism kind of tears the thing apart, you've lost the movement. Whereas if you've distributed the agency and the leadership and lead a full organising rather than kind of one charismatic figure who does it all and everyone else is orientated around, you haven't lost it all. You, you've still got a, a strong sense. They're just one in the network of many, as as it were. But yeah, I mean, I. I think that can I,
1: can I add a layer yeah, yeah, yeah. to that? because yeah, yeah. that's such a rich point that you just shared. the The feet of clay is something that she often pointed out and said. You know, we can talk a little bit more in a little bit about group centered leadership, but right. she really felt like not only could leaders be assassinated or manipulated or quintil proed or you know, there, there's a whole bunch of ways that leaders can be less than effective. So you're at, I 100% agree with you on her suspicion. However, her favorite person in the world is her grandfather, who's a Baptist preacher. And right. throughout her life, I think there's two parts of the church that she really appreciates. One is that cohesive role of the church as a spiritual home, as a material uh, convener, or a source of strength for Black communities. Um, and the second is what what shocked me... <laughs> is that uh, one of the SNCC people who I adore, but who is absolutely cantankerous is this wonderful guy named Tim Jenkins. Right. And he talks about uh, when we were in SNCC, we used to always attack the ministers as Uncle Toms and sellouts and everything else. And Miss Baker would come and say, nope. She you know, she really helped us see them in a different kind of way that was positive. And right. how could we coordinate our efforts with them and be not as a much of a threat to them? Right. And so I think it's, complicated for her because while you're right about this to the struggle, this person who has the problem has to be the person who solves it. And if you have a savior come in, that's never going to happen. And Hmm. the church was an essential organization for her. And she knew that there was an important role that ministers played. So so somewhere in all of that, I think um, she had, you know, she was trying to navigate a huge number of complex dynamics
0: Yeah. Can you, can you say then a bit like what, how would you describe her approach to organizing and and what what does she see specifically as the role of the organizer?
1: So as you mentioned earlier, above everything else, it's the relationship. So she always asked people, I mean, the SNCC people are across the board uniform in this. How are you? How's your family? How are your people? She would really, even in the middle, middle of the biggest movement crisis, She took time for individuals and treated everyone with this deep humanity and genuinely wanted to know and remembered their, you know, sibling's name and remembered who was sick. And so she was a person who was a relationship builder, not as a practical, this is the way to organize, although she did think that that was the way to organize, but it was also because she loved human beings. I mean, she just loved people. She loved talking to people. This is like the six-year-old driving around with their grandfather on the horse and buggy. So she, that was the, the building block. Hmm. And then the next piece for her was the network. So I think part of what she saw with the building of the cooperative movement in the 30s was, holy cow, if we can get all of these cities together, we have so much buying power. But it's a matter of education and it's a matter of helping people get there. So the rest of her life, she's trying to build these networks And as I said, she's the architect of one which completely changes the political structure of the country. Um, So she sees, the second thing is she sees the power of those networked relationships. Unfortunately for us, she was one of the best relationship builders and network builders that I know of. And it was not as easy for her to share that knowledge on a wide scale.
2: Right.
1: So I think it's something that we have to sort of Archive we have to unearth and keep sharing with with subsequent generations. Um, But the third thing that that describes her approach to organizing is that, as Bernice Johnson Regan from SNCC said, she did not leave any space she moved through the way it had been before she moved through it, and she herself never created the change. She engaged the people she found in the space, so. In this wonderful film that we were just talking about, Fundy, there's this beautiful scene. She goes home to North Carolina for a family reunion. And there's this little nine, eight or nine-year-old boy that is her great-nephew. And she says, how's it going? And he says, not so good. School's boring. People talk at me. I don't get a chance to really explore. And he's really like down in the mouth. And she just says, she looks right back at him with this loving smile. And she says, well, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, I mean, here she is organizing her nine-year-old great nephew. And so you just see her re, re, just again and again, believing that people, no matter how old, no matter how much they lack structural power, believing in them and believing in their ability to self-govern and believing in their ability to figure out the solution. And that was her approach. It just, it, it was start with the relationship, build the network Care about people and keep working with them that they have the solution, and then she thought so strategically, both short term and long term, um, that you know she was able to shift. <laughs>
0: right. Right. It, I mean, it's it, that phrase in the Charles Payne book. He has that title of the uh, chapter: "Slow and Respectful Work." And I've never known if that's a quote from Miss Baker, but it, I mean, it it, it feels painfully slow that work <laughs> and it, it is all about respecting the dignity of each person you find them and connecting them in their own who they are and their place they're at as a person and, and yeah there's no shortcuts to it but it is central to meaningful organizing work but it and she does she completely Im- She's got the patience of a saint, as far as I can see, sitting in endless SNCC meetings for hours and hours and hours and hours days. Really. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, that it, it's always, I don't know, I, it, it it's easy to get frustrated with that kind of approach to organising, but it, it does seem to me central that relate, putting people before programme means taking each person seriously as a person mm-hmm. who they are in, in themselves. Can you, I mean, how does she then go about getting people to, I mean, you mentioned the the, the nephew. How, how does she go about getting people to think and act for themselves?
1: So she is an. Ex- so many people have described her as a tremendous, regal, powerful force. So she moves through the room, and the air changes. So when she's sitting there talking to you, it is very hard for you to not respond to her. So. And she doesn't, while she definitely cared about people and asked about them, there wasn't a lot of chit-chat. Right. So always focused on what, what comes next and how might we get there. And so I think your point about the that kind of agonizing nature of the pace is something really powerful and, and even profound for organizing today. Um, one of the SNCC people told me, I was asking him this morning on a call, like, okay, I got to do this podcast. What would you, what's like the number one thing? This is Cortland Cox. And he says, she was so patient with us. We weren't patient. We wanted the world to change tomorrow. And she was so patient with us. You know, she had sat through all this NAACP stuff and all this great depression stuff and all this SCLC stuff. And then she saw it happening again with us. And she was so patient with us. And so I think people responded to her because she was so respectful no matter what their social class or their region or their education level their age their race uh and and she really wanted to listen but she also never kind of let a person sit with just woe is me.
2: Right. Right.
1: What what are we going to do? How are you going to change your situation? And I think that that there aren't that many models, at least that I've seen in the country today, um, where political leaders within a progressive movement have that kind of patience and faith Mm -hmm. in ordinary people and and articulate it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And she not only articulated it regularly, she articulated it, in
0: every interaction, right, right, I mean, it, 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 it' a kind of nice way of framing, in some, some sense, her kind of political philosophy is in this phrase she has let let the people decide. Can you just unpack that? And we touched on it a little bit already, but like, what do you, how do you think she would, or, or from her writings, from what we have of other people said about what she said, what was her understanding of democracy, and 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 why mm-hmm. was Why was she so committed to it?
1: So you talked a little bit earlier, we talked a little bit earlier about economic democracy and that remains a force for her throughout. In the 60s, she encourages SNCC people to organize cooperatives and they do, in both Georgia and Mississippi, work with local people to develop um, agricultural cooperatives and sewing cooperatives. One of the things she says again and again throughout the early period of the sixties is there's no way to affect a basic change without political clout. And the only way that black people can develop that clout is through the ballot. So she's absolutely on board with Amzie Moore, who's the architect of um, the Mississippi voting rights movement right after he comes back from the war and is, you know, fighting for democracy abroad and then doesn't experience, isn't able to experience it at home. So, One thing that that is important is both that economic democracy piece from the 30s and then in the 1960s, uh, making sure that Black Southerners all have the ballot, but not just have the ballot, but feel like they know what to do with it. So she supports this very slow. This is like the House meetings before the mass meetings, right? Making sure people have experience articulating what they want and what they think and practicing in small groups and then speaking up in larger groups. So that is a really important piece of her political philosophy. But then I think there's a third piece that Charles Payne so beautifully calls a moral anchor. Mm -hmm. She herself was not nonviolent. So she said, you know, if anybody steps on my neck, forget it. You know, I'm coming at them. But she really appreciated the role that nonviolence played as a moral anchor that she felt it helped people relate to one another more decently, more humanely. And so... And of course, that was the way she interacted with people. And so I think those are three pretty important parts of her political philosophy. And and I, I feel like that base of knowledge comes from her lived experience. She saw this work as a child growing up. It wasn't it was enhanced by her formal study um but every idea she came across in formal study had to serve the cause of justice i think that's right. probably the the most basic uh, part of her philosophy
0: and it's seems part part of this how this philosophy works out is this absolute centrality of kind of listening debate and dialogue getting people to talk to the extent that she's quite happy with them to sit for days and days and talk and talk and talk until they've <laughs> reached a consensus it's not Here's a structure. I mean, some ways of contrast to the NAACP is here's a structure. Go do what we say, and that's part yeah. of it. Also, going back to what we said about the kind of resistance to a kind of certain communist kind of organising. We've already got the program. We just need to recruit the people to do to deliver the program. She's like, yeah. no, it's through bringing people together. Talk, 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 talk. You then discover the program through this dialogue and process of debate, and then we we've all, almost built the people that will then enact the program because it's emerged from them. So kind of we, you know, it's a cliche, but we become the change we're trying to enact through this process right. of, of dialogue. And yeah, can you just say kind of a little, like how how she fostered that debate and dialogue, particularly in the SNCC context?
1: So I think you're right that it's cliche that, you know, we need to be the change we want to see. However, very few of us know how to do it.
2: Right.
1: So I loved doing the IAF training in 96 because it helped me see a practical way to do it that I hadn't. At that point, I was in a PhD program and I had never seen it done in my life.
2: Right.
1: So I don't think we can underestimate how important it is that people take the time to meet with people, to get to know them, not in a transactional way, but in a relational way. Hmm. And so she had this tremendous faith in everyone. Mm. She really (laughs) believed it. She, it was radical in the sense that people need to believe in themselves to, to be small D democratic. Right. To think that their opinion is worth something. Yeah. And so she put that forward as a, just a bedrock principle. We're not going to debate that. Mm. And, and then she lived it out in these day-to-day interactions that people could copy. I see her move. Okay. I can move that way. Right. So I feel like that is such an underdeveloped, if you and I were having this conversation on MSNBC or Fox, nobody would understand what we're talking about.
2: But, right.
1: <laughs> and that, yeah. and that matters. If we're, if we're going to live into the credo of the country, mm-hmm. you and I can't be on just a podcast, right? This has to be legible language that people understand mm-hmm. and they know how to recognize it when it happens and they know how to call it out when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that model that she provides, the strength of this quiet presence, the way she stays with people. Um, so you asked for an example in SNCC. <laughs> so in 1961, so very young organization, it's only been around a year. Diane Nash is the head of the direct action wing that wants to do sit-ins and wait-ins and, and pray-ins and right all these direct actions. So very much the Black Lives Matter movement circa 2014. And Charles Jones, who's the son of a minister, wants to do voter registration. The way is the ballot. And, and there's so much conflict inside a SNCC, they think they're going to break apart. And so they invite Miss Baker to a meeting and she shows up and she's got asthma. So she's got a, and everybody's smoking, nice. but she's got this mask on, right? She sits there for, for 15 hours while they have this debate. and And as Charles Jones later says, well... About 9 p.m., she says, what would it be like if you all did both and just had two wings of SNCC? And then huge, uh, five more hours of debate ensues. (laughs) And then she raises the question, and now it's 4 a.m. She raises the question, well, what do you think it would look like if you had two different wings? How would that practically work? And so again, right, all this conversation. Well, by the end of the night, Joan says, by the next morning at this point, Joan says, not only did we have our organization intact, we have two wings. We have a clear idea of how we're inter- going to interact. And we love each other more than we ever have. And we really didn't like each other the day before. <laughs> <You know? So laughs> she has this enormous ability. This is what Cox is talking about, this patience for them and patience for them, you know, teaching them to be patient with themselves this capacity to respect the dignity of one another. And it's not irrelevant. It's not a sideshow. Hmm. It's central to what you're calling political philosophy, right? It's your, it's the basis of your podcast. It's really how do we, how do we enact that in our day-to-day lives?
0: Yeah, I think that that the um that sense that you're I mean, I was, I'm I'm talking. I'm, I'm doing some work because uh, I'm going to do an episode on Hannah Arendt, and it's very striking to me the parallels. I've never seen it before, but there are extraordinary parallels between what you just said and actually Hannah Arendt's philosophy of the, the importance of democracy and and kind of how you oppose totalitarianism and the place mm. of loneliness. For ha- Arendt, is we don't come together. We're isolated, we're atomized. For for Aaron, democracy is that the centrality of coming together to talk, discover who you are through building a common world of meaning and action between you, that then you discover your humanity and your humanity in another, and you can then work together. And it's when people are isolated and atomized, they're both more cynical and more gullible. And because there's mm-hmm. no relationship between them and they don't trust each other, they could be subject to kind of populist demagogues or, you know, the Fox News type, you know, feeds or MSNBF. You're, you're just, you're subject to your news feed, not the shared world of meaning and action you've built together, which then is the basis of a, a real politics.
1: Um
0: That's beautifully put, yeah. I think that's, it's funny, it just it struck me that it's, it is a remarkably consistent move and the place then of dialogue as the basis of relationship, as the basis of moving to shared action is, and therefore the role we talked about earlier of popular education is key in in, in all of that, is that space of appearing together and discovering a shared life together that exactly you just modelled that that moment in the SNCC. It's exactly what they were discovering. They were discovering, they were becoming... A people through that kind of debate, agonistic debate, but they can then move to shared action together through it. It's a kind of beautiful model of that uh, process. Um, can you, I mean, just on that, can you say a little bit about, she's got this famous aphorism, or not famous, should be more famous, but very good aphorism, "A, a strong people don't need strong leaders. Can you just unpack that a bit? Because I, I think it's, again, it's emerging in that story as well.
1: Yeah. So, Leaders are important for a lot of reasons. They get people to the table. They invite people in. They're a portal by which people find the movement. They are oftentimes able to articulate the vision of the beloved community or the vision of a small D democracy or the vision of a self-determining people that inspire people and get us excited and get us out of our routine. So there's a crucial role for the Stokely Carmichael's, the MLK's, the Fred Hampton's, Diane Nash's. Hmm. However, leaders can be manipulated and get caught up in ego or lose their relationships to everyday people. They can be taken out, as we saw by the FBI and the Cointelpro um, set setup that, that governments often run or you know that the FBI ran on the movement for black lives by calling people black identity extremists. Right. So there's lots of dangers for Movements that depend on a single charismatic leader or even a few charismatic leaders. Lots and lots of dangers. So her philosophy was, if you bi- if you start with people at the grassroots and you ask them what they want, and you listen to them and you work with them to help them devel- develop confidence and experience in articulating what they want and to think about what they want in the presence of others, to think with people, to get used to that. And so many schools were not given that opportunity. It's an industrial style, style classroom and people are raised to think that their opinions don't matter. So we live in a hierarchical society where a lot of times people can go from cradle to grave and never be asked what they think.
2: Right.
1: So her approach to that was, let's start with wherever I find somebody. If they're 93, fine. If they're, if they're nine, fine. Mm. And, and let's develop them. As a human being who can say what they think to talk with others and listen to what they think and debate. Mm. And then those strong people can determine for themselves how to live. That's democracy as she understood it. This simple idea of self-determination. And so to her, if you have those strong people at the base, they are leaders already. Right. They don't need a charismatic leader. A charismatic leader is always welcome. Mm. <laughs> so it's not like she was anti-charismatic leader. Yeah. It's just that she didn't want only the charismatic leader for all the reasons that you've discussed earlier.
0: Mm. Right. And so, I mean, that kind of, I mean, in some ways what you said, would you describe... Her reading through some of her speeches, I was struck by this very kind of strong humanist element to to the kind of place of how do you respect the dignity and intrinsic worth of each person? Would you describe? Because it's hard to kind of place her in some ways in terms of political ideologies, as it were. Right. Would you Would you think it's a? Would you describe her as a humanist? Would that kind of characterize some of her political philosophy, for want of a better term?
1: Okay. So I will say that, that what you just said is absolutely true. And I feel like having tried to learn as much as I could about her, she would resist with every fiber of her being, being categorized. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, in deference to her legacy, I will say that she absolutely saw every human being as a child of God. Hmm. And even if she did not herself always believe in a uh, anthropomorphic God, she re- repeated that throughout her life, that we are all equal in the eyes of the higher power.
2: Right.
1: And until everyone has equality, no one has a, this is a Fannie Lou Hamer quote, but she also believed it and shared it multiple times that until one person is free, no one, or until everyone is free, no one is free.
0: Right. Right. right, right,
1: So that vision that has been articulated in a humanist context, I think she would strongly agree with, but for the reasons that we talked about since her right. teens, <laughs> yeah.
0: anti-dogmatism somewhat- <laughs> <laughs> resistant yeah. to that idea. I forget that. I, do, I kind of want to, this is a, this is a more tricky area and I, I'm very interested, like what, what your take on this is. Obviously throughout the kind of history of SNCC, the question of white involvement um and black leadership of what was a predominantly black led organization or those kind of biracial what what was baker's approach to the question of racial integration and 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 the kind of and then how did class Play a role in her analysis because that's obviously again still we're still debating racial capitalism and debates right. from race, race and class and and that's still a very live debate but it's one which kind of emerges very forcefully under her watch within SNCC it's in some ways it's kind of ground zeroes for some ways that that debate went with the emergence of Black Power so I'm just kind of interested in how you yeah. how you see her take on that it, leaving yeah. aside obviously you have got to Toray, Stokeley Carmichael on one side, and then you've got the whole development of, of of Black Panther Party on. In some ways, I put over and against that. Um, but but yeah, so I, yeah, I'm interested in how you how you see her take on that on that kind of question.
1: So I appreciate the question. It's a little bit layered, so I'll give a little bit of a layered response. Yeah. So for your listeners, I'm a white woman, and situated knowledge is important. So I think studying this movement, as I have for 25 years, it's important to know. What kind of life experience I've had? So, part of what I did with my first book on SNCC was say that um, sort of black SNCC's early uh, slogan was "black and white together," and I juxtaposed that with the idea of Black Power. And through a lot of exciting work that that I've been able to do with SNCC activists since, building the SNCC Digital Gateway, doing a critical oral history series on Black Power. I've come to see this as a very flawed model that I had set up in my own book and in my own head. You know, I only knew what I knew at the time. Yeah. But really, what black power was was just self-determination. In these majority black communities throughout the black belt of the South, people wanted the ability to vote in their own sheriff who wouldn't abuse people. They wanted their ability to, to select school board members, tax assessors, etc. Mm-hmm. So Black power is something I've come to see as not oppositional to black and white together, but in fact, an essential component of any society where we might actually have equality. You first need people to feel like they have the tools to be Mm -hmm. self-determining. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is that. um, In my role as a scholar of SNCC, there's sort of three questions that come up all the time. One is did Stokely Carmichael really say is the position of women in SNCC prone? And the answer is yes, he did. And it was a joke. He was one of the biggest supporters of women in the organization. And the second question people often ask is what happened with kicking white people out? And the third question people ask about is economic democracy. Right. Right. So, so, so over the years, my answer has kind of evolved because I've learned more from, from the work that I'm doing now. So on this question of white people, um, It's interesting because when SNCC starts, it's a majority Southern, majority Black-led organization. So it's created by young people who are at HBCUs in the South who do the sit-ins. And they, because of Ella Baker, start to work with local activists on voter registration. And those dynamics are really important for young people today, just learning what Black Southerners did who were, you know, sometimes 14, 15, 16 years old including right here in Durham. Right. So that's that's such a powerful example. And there were no whites supporting them. You know, they just did it on their own. Uh, and young people from the Movement for Black Lives today saw what happened in SNCC when white people began to join the organization and did something really powerful, which is that they said, you know what? We are unapologetically black.
2: Right.
1: We're going to organize black people and other people can out- organize other people. And that's fine, but we're going to do it this way. And it, did, it does save the Movement for Black Lives People a lot of energy internally, that they didn't have to go through what's the role of white people, um, because SNCC had a lot of debates about that that were really unproductive. Having said all that, there are some lessons, right? There's some things we can take from it. So one of the things I will take from it uh, is that in 1963, Yale students came down for the first time to Mississippi to do this thing to try to help black people register. And what they brought with them was a lot of ignorance about the movement itself and the situation on the ground. But they brought the northern white media and the federal government because they're middle class white kids and they're coming from Yale. And so they brought a level of protection to the movement that it had not had before, where black people were beaten and sometimes murdered with no recourse to the federal government and with no media coverage. So, however. Because they were told, the white kids were told, go out and register people to vote. They would kind of thrust the papers at somebody Fine. and tell them to sign. And then they turn around and leave and go to the next house. Yeah. So they weren't organizing. And in fact, they were reproducing the dynamics of plantations Fine. just around the voting. Right. So it didn't work. Yeah. And so SNCC saw both of that, that they came down and brought the national media and the press I mean, the government. And then they saw also that they were reinforcing these white supremacist dynamics. When the white students from Yale were confronted by the black SNCC people, hey, you're reproducing these white supremacist dynamics. A lot of times they got offended and they had to have these big talks and it saved, it, it wasted a lot of time and energy. So so that was something that was a big challenge that, that SNCC never successfully figured out how to address. Fine. And I would argue is still an issue in movement organizing today.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The second thing that happened there is that um, sometimes white people, because they had more formal education, tended to take over leadership roles and stymie the tremendous development of Southern black leaders who were doing the work.
2: Right.
1: So that was a second dynamic that had to be unpacked and dealt with. And then a third and final piece is that they were trying to build a new interracial world together. So they were trying to be the world that they wanted to become. Okay. And so in some places in SNCC, like in Southwest Georgia, Charles Sherrod, a uh, young black leader from Petersburg, Virginia, said to the white people, you know, come on in, right. come on in. And I'm asleep. Literally, <laughs> he slept It's a shotgun house. So he put the the men on one side and the women on the other, and he slept in the hallway because they were young and he was like, we're not going to have any interracial sex. Like no, just, and he was like, we're going to demonstrate that black and white can live together. Right. So so that was a third complex layer is people did see through that kind of racial racist crap. They'd been taught as kids Mm -hmm. and got to know and love each other as human beings. Um, in spite of Jim Crow, in the heart of Jim Crow, um, to sort of show that this is possible to the rest of the world who was largely skeptical, both the racists and the, the dreamers were like, eh, I can't work in the middle of the deep South. Yeah. So as a result of all of that frenetic energy, there are some whites that come out of that, like Marshall Gantz, like Heather mm-hmm. Booth or Latinos like Maria Varela who go on to become incredible lifelong organizers in their own communities.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, Baker's attitude towards all of this was practical. Right. She always, always focused on what will allow self-determination So if, you know, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, when white kids come down, I feel better. Okay. Well then in Ruleville, maybe you can have white people working as organizers, but they've got to respect the local organizers as well. And then they had to educate for that. But in other situations, if the local leader said, you know what? I don't want any white people. Right. Then SNCC said, all right, we're not going to, we're not going to send you white students. So it was kind of what will foster self-determination and she encouraged, of course, the SNCC people to ask local people, what, did you, what do you want the role of white organizers to be?
0: All right, that's really that's
1: class. If you want me to go into that, I can go into that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, well, that's a really, that's really, that's, that's a really, really helpful. Because uh, I think it is all of that complexity is there. And I think it's, it's helpful the way you've laid it out precisely because so often, I think in, in the contemporary moment and particularly in academic settings, the ability to see things as in that kind of complicated interlaced way and that all of those things can be true and present. We're very bad at at holding tension with each other and of dealing with the people. Each person is a kind of complex bundle of loyalties and each organizing setting involves complex overlapping, both oppressions and opportunities mm. and how do we what what is the what is meaningful action within that um is very hard to discern and I think that's again something of what Miss Baker models and embodies is the ability to stay with complex situations and be in a certain way, that people can find a way through. Now, it's it's part of the loss of that patience, which I think was in your first book. That that I think you're right. Right that you know I, I completely agree with your analysis of Black Power you just given. But there, but but there was, in a sense, a loss of ability to be patient with each other and persevere that was lost at that moment. It, and and that that was something of what went wrong. Even though I think it was right, the Black Power move was was right. Just I mean, on on that on that sense of because central. To what she was doing is this intergenerational work of putting younger folk with these long stand like Horace Watkins and and MZ Moore and others. There's there's this is this very strong intergenerational dimension. Can you just say a little bit about what her legacy is today um, and what are some of the kind of you've you've touched on them already a little bit, but some of the contemporary youth movements influenced by her and and what 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 in her legacy do they draw on and and what, why, why do you think they identify with her?
2: Mm.
1: She represents for a lot of the people who are organizing today, a sense of unshakable self while yoking her reality and her position to the people at the base that I think is just so inspiring to young people. And instead of being about ego, she's about the work. Right. And she consistently modeled a way to interact with others that was respectful and thoughtful and geared towards action. How do we get this done Right. rather than a dogmatism? And I think a lot of the young people who grew up in, who are millennials, have seen a lot of people tell them that they know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Here's how you do it. Or I have the secret. And this is true in academics as well as in organizing circles. And what millennials looked out at in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012 was, no, these structures are, if anything, stronger than ever. And neoliberalism is, you know, coming down so hard on us and our families and our communities. And we don't have the tools we need. So I think that flexibility and, and creativity and just love, you know, deep engagement in the work Mm -hmm. radiates out, you know, she threw it forward (laughs) for people to pick up as a legacy. And so her role as an ancestor for these folks is just really, really important. Uh, Her commitment to listening, her commitment to respecting young people as somebody said in in one of the early movement for black lives marches to Al Sharpton, this is not your granddaddy civil rights movement, right? We are not like you in that way. And so at the same time, she really fostered a deep respect for intergenerational organizing and young people have very much responded to veterans of core veterans of SNCC veterans of other local, um, long term organizers in the Panthers, um, certainly the mass incarceration movement, movement against mass incarceration, all of those veterans who are now in their 60s and 70s and 80s, who who, who listen in that same way Miss Baker did, hmm. have been extremely important for um, young people organizing today in both the Trayvon Martin generation and in the George Floyd, you know, the Gen Z folks that are just getting activated now.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think those are really important components of her legacy, and they'll continue to be tools that people can use throughout their lives and develop more deeply. She's kind of endlessly resourceful as a as a lineage, as somebody to look to, because she did so many different things during her life and tried so many different approaches.
0: Wesley, thank you so much. That was a wonderfully rich conversation and tremendous insights and real wisdom, I think, there about kind of, well, the wisdom we can learn from Miss Baker and and her legacy. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for letting me share. It was great to talk with you.
0: Thank you for joining me for this, the first part of a two-part episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast on the work and democratic vision of Ella Baker. In part two of this episode, I talked to Gerald Taylor about the influence of Baker's approach and her vision had on him as an organizer, how he understands her approach to organizing and sees it play out on the ground and his involvement in myriad grassroots democratic initiatives. This podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. And as with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode. From the website, that's www.ormancenter.com, backslash, listen, dash, organize, dash, act, dash, podcast. For now, let me say goodbye, and I hope you join me next time for the second part of this two part episode on Ella Baker.